So what should we talk about today? Well, I think today we've got a passage of scripture that we're going to look at that is absolutely appropriate and timely for what we see going on around us. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe you haven't noticed this or uh, maybe I just have a, a, a weird perspective of things. But as I look around, the world's kind of goofed up. You know, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of just weird stuff going on. And uh, it's tough, isn't it? It really is. These are not things that we like, and, and we don't like to deal with them. And I think it's awfully easy to look around, especially during times like this, and think, you know, it has never been worse than it is right now. And while that could be somewhat true in some, in some ways, I think the reality is there has been chaos and conflict and goofiness in our world since the beginning. You know, we've seen it over and over and over again as we walk through the book of Genesis. And certainly as we look out our windows today, we see it ever more clearly. I think the familiar phrase still applies. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And it really is true. If you think about it internationally, there's still fighting going on in the, mid, in the Middle East. There's still fighting going on around our world. Nationally, we're still a country that is absolutely split down the middle. We've got some red states, we've got some blue states, and they seem to be going in exact opposite direction. Financially, we've learned how to make sales and transactions in whole new ways, but the world economy is still driven by that simple principle of supply and demand. And domestically, well, kids still think they know more than their parents, don't they? And I can tell you, they think they know a lot more than their grandparents, and that's not a good thing either. From the beginning of time until today, and from today until Jesus comes, things are going to be goofed up. Because the truth is, we are living on a spiritual battlefield, and the proof is obvious everywhere we look. And just like every other battlefield, the spiritual battlefield requires every individual to make a choice to pick a side, to either live trusting God or to live in rebellion against him. Now reach for your Bible, open it up. It's obviously going to fall right to the book of Genesis, but you fight that urge and flip to about the middle and you'll find Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, where we're reminded of the spiritual truth, the more things change, the more they stay the same. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the word, reading of the Word of God and you read along as we read Psalm chapter 2 together. It begins, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will de declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. 
Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word this morning, and we just pray that you have already prepared us to, to receive the message that, that you have for us, that it's an individual message, and that you will speak to us individually. Lord, it's, uh, it's just a natural response to be concerned about many of the things that we see going on in our world. But Lord, help us to stay focused on you. Help us to stay focused on the plan and the promises that you have given us. And Father, we just pray that we would leave here differently. We would leave here more like Jesus. And we would leave here encouraged by the promises of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I really like the Psalms. And I think a good bit of that is because I'm a pretty simple guy. I learn in a pretty simple way. I like to see things. Yes, I'm from Missouri. And you have to show me. And... That's what the Psalms do. The, Psalm paints, the Psalms paint vivid pictures that, at least for me, are easy to understand and easy to follow. And, and, and they are encouraging and they lead us when we need to be led. And the picture that we see in Psalm chapter 2 is a picture of the war that's been raging since before that first bite of the forbidden apple. Psalm 2 is a prophetic passage that reminds us of the lordship of Jesus Christ but also of the urgency, the importance, the value of making the right choice about which side of the spiritual battle lines we're standing on and we're living in. It's the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. It shows up at least nine times in Acts, in Hebrews, and in Revelation. It's a beautiful picture that gives us a godly perspective of this ongoing spiritual battle. And it begins, as you would expect, in verse 1 with a statement about the reality of spiritual warfare. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? You know, you've, you've seen, and, and uh, certainly we've seen more war via the various news uh, channels that we have now. We've seen more war than we care to. And there's no question that whether you're talking about spiritual war or physical war, war is just an absolute ugly thing, isn't it? In fact, it's so ugly that I think oftentimes we try not to think about it. We, it's kind of in that same category as death. If I just don't think about it, then it won't be a problem. We, we often try to soften it up, too. We try to call it different things so that we don't have to recognize and deal with the ugliness. Over 100,000 people have died fighting in Syria just in the past several years, and yet oftentimes that is referred to as a crisis. The news reports will tell us that there's fighting, there's conflicts, there's feuds, skirmishes, and hostilities in various places around the world. But what's really going on is wars are being fought, and they're being fought just about in every part of the world. And while all wars have a sense of uniqueness, they all share some common commonalities and common characteristics that are equally true, whether we're talking about a physical war or whether we're talking about a spiritual war like we are in Psalm 2. And first, as you would guess, we, we can identify that wars are about serious conflicts. 
Wars involve battle lines being drawn. People are fighting, people are dying, and things are being destroyed. Psalm 2 isn't identified as a psalm of David in our, in our Bibles, but Acts 2.30 and Acts 4.25 both confirm for us that, Saul, that David is indeed the author of this psalm. And one thing that we know about David is that he knew a lot about war. He was himself a warrior. As just a boy, he stood against all odds and he went against the giant Philistine Goliath. And from that day on, both his life and his legend were linked to war. They were linked to the battlefield. In 1 Samuel, we read that as a young man, he was a celebrated war hero. And throughout his life, the most significant events that are recorded in Scripture, the good, the bad, and even the ugly, they all revolved around times of battle, times of war. War is about conflict. And we can know that as David wrote this, he knew more about that subject than most people. Wars are also ongoing. Wars consume long periods of times and they often cover generations of people. If you've ever had the privilege to visit the Holy Land, you quickly see that each site that you go to is really a physical record of thousands of years of conflict. Layers of civilizations that are built on top of each other, each one defining the human conflict that's gone on in the Middle East for thousands of years. Battle after battle, conquest after conquest, all captured in each of those sites. Did you know at least 30 wars are currently being fought in our world today? And many of them have been going on for more than 50 years. So wars involve conflict. Wars are ongoing. But thirdly, wars always have a motivation. Something Something important, apparently, has always been deemed worth fighting for. Now, often the stated reason is about getting more territory or about obtaining uh, needed natural resources. Sometimes wars are fought over human rights issues. Sometimes wars are fought as an act of protection against a perceived threat. David had probably fought in wars for all kinds of different reasons and all kinds of different causes. But it seems that somewhere along the way, he realized that the threads that run through every conflict can be traced back to one thing, to the selfish ambitions of men, men who are determined to be rebellious against God. You know, I've been in a lot of different countries where it is commonplace that people speak about the spiritual warfare that they see going on around them. People, places like Brazil and, and uh, Haiti and uh, even the Dominican Republic and others. But for whatever reason, it seems here in the States, if you bring up spiritual warfare, people will roll their eyes. It's like they don't want to admit that it's real. But David's message is, and it's in verse 2, he says, listen, spiritual warfare is every bit as real as physical warfare. And the two, they're not separate. They're actually entwined together. Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth have set themselves apart. The rulers take counsel together against a common enemy, against the Lord. The message is, if you peel back the onion of war far enough... All wars are motivated by the same thing. It's the strong will of men 
rebelling against God, against his laws, and even against his people. In the Old Testament, there are records of nearly a hundred wars involving God and the nation of Israel. There's wars against the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Midianites, the Perizzites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Benjaminites, and that's just to name a few. I did a little extra research, a little extra homework. It appears that the Kazumtites were a peaceful lot. But anybody else that had ites at the back of the name, they were going to come looking to pick a fight with God and with his people. And it's still true today, isn't it? As we look around our world, it becomes more and more true that God's people are being attacked, that they're not safe. And the sad fact is, it is becoming true even here in our own country, and it's becoming more true each and every day. The battles that began in the Middle East thousands of years ago and are still being fought today have now spread around the world as the gospel has spread around the world. So we have attacks on God and on anyone who claims the name of Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus warned us about in John 15, 18, when he said, if the world hates you, listen, it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you and embrace you as its own. Like it or not, as a Christian, you're a problem to the lost world that you live in. Our calling is to be salt and light. But it's a timeless truth that the more salty you are and the brighter your light shines, the more of an obstacle and even an irritant you are to the world around you. Because that world wants to break free from God and break free from his response. And as a follower of his, you're an accessory to that. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, it's the desire of these leaders to break God's bonds in pieces and cast God's cords of restraint from themselves. It's a picture, if you picture a, a, a large animal, maybe a, uh, maybe a workhorse or a, a draft horse, you know, these things, they're, they're all muscle, right? Now picture that, that horse straining with every bit of energy that it has. Every muscle is flexed, straining against the harness, straining against the cords of God's restraint and trying to break away from them. David's telling us that the conflicts in our world, they're not based on nationalities. They're not based on politics or prejudices. They're not even based on geography. They're motivated by one thing, by the wickedness of the human heart and by man's desire to drive God out of the very world that he created. It's the confirming message that we find in Jeremiah 17, 9. Man's heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's a battle that we see raging all around us in the world. But listen. Even though we're believers, even though we're Christians, we're not immune to that, bottle, to that battle. We're never immune to those same selfish desires and that struggle that we see in the world. The reality is it's going on in us as well. You see, to be all that you can be for God, you must consciously embrace the reality that the war for your heart 
is a war that's being fought moment by moment every single day. And we must be ready to take that on. While we should absolutely be concerned about what's going on around us, the very most important question that we should be asking ourselves every day, it's not a national question, it's not a political question, it's not even a racial question, it's a personal question. It's who's really winning the ongoing battle for my heart. Which side of the battle lines am I really standing on? When temptation and spiritual challenges come calling on you, are you standing on that side that stands for God? Are you characterizing salt and light? Or are you reaching for the Advil because your muscles and your joints are so sore from straining and pushing against the restraints and the cords of God? As David looked at the landscape of his world, he recognized, yeah, spiritual warfare is indeed a very real thing. But secondly, he also reflected on the resolution of spiritual warfare, that there is an end coming to all of this. His message is that the final chapter of all of this conflict that we've seen throughout history and that we see today, that has already been written. David likely wrote Psalm 2 while he himself was either on or near the field of battle. And his words here carry both a literal and a prophetic application that is worth understanding. They applied to his immediate situation while at the same time providing comfort to him in the promises that he had held on to that God had given. The end of verse 2 further identifies the world's ultimate enemy, who's also the one who can resolve the conflict as the anointed one. Now, probably most of your translations say the anointed one, but not all. Some say the king. Some say the Messiah. So which is the best? Which is the better understanding of what's really being said here? Well, the answer is they all are. And to really understand what's happening here and what David is talking about, it's a combination of the Messiah, the anointed, and the king. Because David's words represent two equally correct understanding of truth. In a literal sense, the reference is to the earthly kings of Israel, of which, of course, David was one. These were God's chosen men, God's representatives. They were small M messiahs who were both appointed and anointed to lead God's people through times of peace, and also through times of conflict. All of Israel's enemies knew that the quickest path to victory was to take out the king. And so David knew as he wrote this that he was always a target. But clearly, there's also a prophetic meaning here. Because the anointed one, the capital M Messiah, the capital K king, is a spiritual reference to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords, to the son of God, to Jesus himself. You know, if you read through the Psalms that David wrote, you will see all kind of uh, examples of how he cried out to God personally for strength, for guidance, and for forgiveness. 
But here he's not doing any of those things. He's really looking beyond his own circumstances. He's writing as a man who understands that while he might be fortunate enough to lead his troops to a victory or two in a battle, he is not able to resolve the wars that dominated his life and his world and that we still see dominating our world today. So he cries out to God to send someone who can. And if we look at verse 6, it's clear that he identifies who that person is. Verse 6 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. David's writing about the day when the promised king will ultimately come, will ultimately conquer, and will reign forever over a peaceful kingdom that knows no chaos, that knows no conflict, and that knows no warfare. Psalm 2 is referenced in Acts 13.33. It's, it's in Revelation 2. It's in Revelation 12. And it's in Revelation 19. All in connection with this ultimate victory. With this final battle where Christ will come and will take what's his. Woodrow Wilson was quoted as saying that he thought World War I would be the war to end all wars. But Scripture tells a different story. Scripture tells us that there's only one war that will end all wars, and there's only one man who is able to accomplish that feat. Revelation 16, 16 says that God's enemies will be gathered together at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, har, meaning mountain, and megiddo, which is a specific location, a destination in Israel. It's from the Mount of Megiddo, just south and east of Nazareth, that you look down onto this beautiful grassy plain that's called the Jezreel Valley. 280 square miles that's reserved for one time in history and for one specific purpose. It will be the final battlefield where God will end all spiritual war and all physical con con uh, conflict forever. Armageddon is located at the crossroads of the Middle East. But in so many ways, it's also at the crossroads of the civilized world. And the Bible is clear that one day, maybe one day soon, it'll be the site of the biggest, the fastest, and the most deadly war that this world has ever known. God will take what's his... And he'll show the world once and for all what it means for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. Worn down by the reality of war and spiritual war, David was looking beyond his own day. He was looking beyond his own situation and circumstance to the promise of Scripture that a day was coming when peace would prevail. So we've talked about the reality of spiritual warfare. We've talked about the resolution of spiritual warfare. But there's one more thing that I see here that uh, is probably the most valuable thing of all. And that's our response to spiritual warfare. You know, Scripture always demands a response. It, it doesn't matter if you just randomly pick up your Bible and, and begin to read. God is going to speak to you as you read that Scripture. 
God is going to begin working on you as you read that scripture. And it's no different here. This passage demands a response. And the message of Psalm 2, I think the response that's really requested and demanded has everything to do with which side of this battle line you're standing on. Psalm 2, for the believer, is an inspiration. It's an inspiring passage that we can live through even the most difficult times of life with the same anticipation that was helping David to get through times. We should live a life that's characterized by confidence. There's very few sure things in life, isn't there? There's just not very many sure things. And nothing is less sure than when we talk about warfare. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld once said, he quickly learned wars are always easier to get into than they are to get out of. Physical warfare is never a sure thing. If you don't believe it, just ask Goliath. He found out the hard way. Sometimes the spiritual battlefield seems to be equally unpredictable, doesn't it? Our faith begins to waver because we see so many things going on that fly in the face of Scripture and that, that, that don't go the way we think we should go. We get worn down by what's going on around us and we begin to doubt whether God's promises will really come true or not. Will Jesus really come back? Or should we be concerned? Well, I can tell you with complete certainty that he will. He is coming back. He will take what's his. I can tell you that because I know that this isn't a book of doubts. It's not a book of guesses. It's not a book of possibilities. It's not even a book of probabilities. This is a book of certainty. This is a book of truth and of absolutes. And I've read the last chapter. In fact, I've read the last chapter more than once. It always ends the same. God wins. And he takes his believers along for the ride. It is an absolutely sure thing. If you want to see how sure it is, well, you just need to look at verse 4. Verse 4 gives us a picture of total confidence. He who sits in the heavens twiddles his thumbs. Nope, not what it says, is it? He who sits in the heavens worries. Mm -mm. He who sits in the heavens schemes. Nope. He who sits in the heavens strategizes. He who sits in the heavens hopes. Doesn't say any of those things. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now that's a confident response, don't you think? If you can sit in the face of anything and laugh, it's a confident response. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. He shall distress them in his deep displeasure. Now look down at verses 8 and 9. God goes on to say, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a response that leaves absolutely no doubt who's going to be left standing 
when all the smoke finally clears. And I believe the purpose behind God sharing this with us is so that we can live with the same sense of certainty that we see as David was dealing with his various struggles. That no matter what happens in our world, we can cling to the hope, we can cling to the promise that God's got it all under control. That God's bigger than anything we're going to face. That God has a plan. And the plan will be victorious. You know, confidence is a, it's an amazing thing. If you are, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. If you have confidence, you can accomplish just about anything. You know, you can, you can do just about anything. But if you lack confidence, man, it's hard to accomplish much of anything. It's hard to get anything done. And the promise of God and the promise of Scripture is that we're to draw confidence from what we read because it gives us peace to go about our life. And you know the best part? When you go out into the world, when you go out these various doors today and you're back into the, to that chaotic, conflicting world, you know what that world's hungry for more than anything else? It's hungry for peace. They just don't know where to look. They just don't know who to look to. But God's promise is we can have that peace. In fact, he says, you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace allows us to be bright lights even in a dark world. In John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you have that peace today? Are you living out that certainty or are you getting dragged down by the uncertainty of what you see and hear around you? You see, we can find peace through any situation and any circumstance because we've been given the end of the story. We can look forward to better days and trust that the final chapter's already been written. You know, before <clears throat> any of us even knew what a pandemic was, and had any idea of how to wear a mask. February 2nd, 2020 was a really good day to be in Kansas City. That was the night that the Chiefs won Super Bowl 54. They came from behind in the last five minutes. They beat the 49ers 31 to 20. And in the end, it was awesome, wasn't it? I mean, that was so much fun and Man, every, you know, weeks after that, everybody was everybody's best friend. And everybody's wearing red. and You could see arrowheads everywhere. And boy, it was fun. But you know, that game was probably close to four hours long. And for about the first three and a half, it wasn't much fun at all. I wasn't having fun, were you? Man, I was nervous. I was worried. I threw in the towel two or three times. Pam said, stop throwing stuff. But I thought, I thought there's no way we're going to win. We're going to lose. We always lose, right? And then everything changed. The last five minutes, it all went a different direction. And all of a sudden, we were winners. Our team was a winner. 
We were champions. I enjoyed it so much that about two or three days later, I decided, you know, I'm going to watch the replay. So I sat down and I watched the replay. I watched every play again, start to finish. I think I cut the halftime, but other than that, I watched the whole thing. Totally different experience. I never worried one bit. I never thought, holy cow, we're going to lose this thing the second time. No. No, I even enjoyed the bad parts because I knew the good parts were coming. Right? You know, the best part was when a guy from San Francisco intercepted the ball and then they all ran down and made fools of themselves there in the end zone. Man, when I watched that the second time, I'm like, yeah, right, just, just wait a few minutes. This is all going to turn. I had total peace about what was going to happen. And I enjoyed that so much. What was different? I knew the end of the story. We've been given the end of the story. Are you tempering your life? Are you receiving that peace and that confidence that comes from knowing that we are going to win and that God is going to do what God has said he's going to do? So the response of the believer should be, should be all of those things. But what about for the non-believer? For the non-believer, Psalm 2 drives a completely different response. And I believe it's a response that demands urgency. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. See, this is not a small matter that we're talking about. This is a life and death decision. And while I can stand here with confidence and tell you, I know God is going to do exactly what he has said he is going to do, what I don't know is when he's going to do it. I don't know when Jesus is going to come, but what I do know is that his return is closer today than it was yesterday. Tomorrow, it's going to be closer than it was today if he doesn't come today. And the message is that as his return grows closer, the risk of waiting becomes greater. And I'll just tell you that it would not be a risk that I'd want to take because there's far too much at stake. The good news is you can still act. You can still get things right. You can still enjoy the victory that's coming because you've done what needs to be done to be on the right side of those battle lines. You can make the right choice today. You can change your outlook. You can change your life, and it all comes by following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as easy as this. First, you just confess your own spiritual rebellion. You confess your sins, and you ask God to forgive you. And you know what? He will. And then you say, would you save me? Would you be my savior? And he will. Because he's been waiting for you to do that very thing. And then you cry out to him and you commit yourself to stop 
trying to lead the best life you possibly can and simply begin that simple process of following somebody else. Follow them through the battlefield, follow them through the good times, follow them through the bad times. And Christ will take you by the hand and he'll lead you and life will change. Your life won't be perfect. Your life won't be everything easy, but your perspective will change. The way you see things will change. The way you live your life will change. And the way you see this world will be changed forever. David's sharing with us today that the message of Psalm 2 is most critical for the person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So let's wrap this up. What do we need to take home with us today? Well, first, you don't need to wonder if spiritual warfare is real. It is. It's going on all around us. It's been going on since way before we were here on this earth, and it will go on. If Jesus doesn't come back, it'll go on long after we're gone. It's real. And it's intertwined with all the conflict and the problems and the wars that we see in our world. Secondly, this war is going to be resolved. It's written down. It's recorded. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. And every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But what we need to remember is that some will bow in victory, and some will bow on the other side of that equation. Where are you at this morning? And finally, if you're looking for peace, it comes through believing the promises of God. From getting up each and every day and not looking to see what's going on in the news as your barometer of what, how you're going to respond. It's grabbing onto these promises that God is going to love you through every situation and every circumstance. Listen, I know good and well there are some tough things going on in people's lives and in families right here in this room. There's, there's people dealing with the loss of loved ones. There's people that are are dealing with a loved one that they know is going to pass soon. There's health problems. There's cancer issues. There's all kinds of stuff. But the promise of God is that we can have confidence that he's bigger than all of it. If we'll just believe and we'll follow and we'll trust. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for not seeking you first and foremost in all the things that we deal with. Lord, we get so concerned and so tied up in knots by what we see going on around us that we really allow ourselves to get sucked into the world when we're to be set apart from that world and from all of those activities. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has never placed their faith in Christ, has never truly trusted him or even that has doubts about where they stand in this great spiritual battlefield I pray that this would be the day that they would take a step and that they would get things right Father we just pray that you would use us as we leave here today we've been reminded of your incredible promises but those promises are only valuable to the people around them if we're willing to open our mouths and share so make us your servants make us your mouthpiece Help us to share that peace that people are so desperately looking with, looking for with the people around us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.